So we're continuing our study of the book of 1 John, which is one of, uh, one of the last books in the Bible. It was written by the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. And, uh, you know, this is advice from an old man to the people he referred to at other places as his young children or as his dear children. It's, it's his, his parting advice to the church and the people who, who he deeply cared about. And it starts off in verse 7. It's printed in your program if you'd like to follow along. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is God's word for God's people this morning. So today I want to talk about the logic of love, how it is that love makes sense. And this, to even put it that way, doesn't really make, make sense because in the American, in the modern way of, of looking at things, we see love and logic as two opposite things. I mean, think of who's the most romantic guy in uh, all of, of uh, Western Amer English literature. Shakespeare and, and, and which play of Shakespeare's? Romeo and Juliet. You think of Romeo and what was more irrational than Romeo and Juliet falling in love with each other? And, uh, you know, uh, two, two kids who weren't even allowed to talk to each other, whose families were feuding with each other, and these two fall in love with each other, and you know how it ends. It ends very badly. But, but at one point, love... Uh, Romeo is speaking to his buddy Ben Volio, and he kind of sums up his view of things, which, which I think is reflected in our broader culture of what love is. He says, love is a smoke raised with fumes of sighs. Being purged, it's a fire sparkling in lovers' eyes. Being vexed, it's a sea nourished with loving tears. And what is it else? A madness most discreet, a choking gall, and a preserving sweet. Got that? But that's kind of the, the, the original text on love in the modern world and love in the romantic era, which we're, we're still kind of in. You know, the, the, the whole, why, why do we think Romeo and Juliet is this wonderful love story? It's because these two, two folks fall in love and they'd rather die than not be together. And so they die. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> but... There is a logic to love. There is something, something that, that there is a way it makes sense, and that's what I want to go through today. And this, this passage kind of breaks that down for us, and I hope this will make you more loving, not less, when we get to the end of it. But let's, he starts out and he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now that, to me, is a very logical, propositional presentation of what this is. We should love one another because God loves us, and if we're born of God, then, 
then we have to love others, and if we don't love, then we don't know God's love. It, it, it makes uh, perfect sense. It's, 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 it's sort of a logical, a, a very logical reasoning to me. If you start with a proposition that, well, God is love, and then you say, well, if, if you know God and if you've experienced his love, then it's not too much for him to ask you to love other people. And if you can't love other people, maybe it's because you don't actually know God. And, and you know, the interesting thing is that these verses are almost no one, I don't, I don't believe in, in sort of the general culture of our world is going to disagree with the reasoning or even the, the, the proposition that God is love. I think that, that's something that almost everybody agrees with. Uh, you know, you might, some of you have recently heard another message on this text. Uh, in fact, about two billion people in this world heard a message on this text just last, uh, last week when uh, the prince and princess, whoever they were, got, got uh, <laughs> their names escaped me. Harry and Meghan, yeah, my, my buddies, Harry and Meghan. <laughs> Got, got married. There, there was a, 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 a message given. The highlight for me was, was the sermon, of course, <laughs> by, by Bishop Michael Curry, who's a, an American Episcopalian bishop, apparently. But uh, he, he preached a sermon that was essentially on this, on this text. And, uh, you know, the thing that struck me about it as, he was, as I was thinking about it and as I was, I was listening to his sermon is nobody really, regardless of what creed you're from, regardless of what your background is, nobody could really disagree with that. Well, God is love, and we should love, and there's nothing like the power of love to solve all of the problems in this world. And, you know, he quotes Martin Luther King, where Martin Luther King said, but we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love, and when we discover that, we will be able to make of this old world a new world. Love is the only way. And I mean, who can disagree with that? How appropriate to say something like that in a, in a, we, in a wedding homily. And the only problem with that is it's not true. It doesn't really work. It makes sense. It's logical. It might even sound spiritual. But, and it's, it's one of the most common themes in weddings and pulpits all over the place. But but it's not consistent with our experience. I mean, every, every wedding sermon says something like this, it seems to me, and yet, why are marriages so hard? Why do so many families break up? Why is it so hard for us to get along with our brothers and our sisters and our parents and our children and, and our neighbors and our roommates and our coworkers? You know, why can't North Korea and South Korea just work things out. They speak the same language, don't they? Uh, you know, and come to think of it, why is it that 50 years after his death, we can still quote Martin Luther King, but we still can't live out the ideals that he proclaimed? So I think, you know, the, the logic of love, it works for wedding homilies, but it's absolutely contrary to the lived experience of everybody who lives in this broken world. And we can talk about it, but for some reason we can't be about it. It's logical, it makes sense, but it's impossible to actually implement. You know, we should love one another because love comes from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, but for some reason we don't. And it's not 
the way this world is. Not now, not ever. And why is that? Because, you know, to, to, I think when we talk about this, we leave out one fact that we'd prefer not to face, one reality that we'd all prefer not to deal with, and one, one, uh, one thing that we live with that we'd prefer to ignore, and that is the deep extent of how broken we are, how flawed we are, how dark some of our thoughts are, how selfish we all are, how insecure we are, how enslaved and compulsive we are, and how, frankly, how guilty we are, and how resentful we are, how much hate and anger we carry in our hearts. You know, we're almost irredeemable. In fact, we can't redeem ourselves. If, if the only structure of the, the New Testament was love one another, for love comes from God, it's hopeless for all of us. But that's not all there is. You know, th these commands, someone has said, well, well, you know, following God's will is simple. All he wants us to do is love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself, right? That's not a lot to ask until you think about it and you realize, I don't love God with just a tenth of my heart and soul and mind and strength. And, and I don't even know what it means to actually love my neighbor as I love myself. I mean, and if you think you do, then you haven't really thought about what that means. You know, just, you know, a lot of people say, well, I just follow the golden rule. You know, the golden rule came from Jesus. Matthew 7, verse 12 in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's, it's that simple. But that's you know, basically impossible if you think about it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So, so the, these commands expose our sin. And, the, 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 and nothing, I think, if you really think about it, if you're really honest about it, nothing exposes your brokenness and your sin than your inability to love the people around you the way that you know the Bible says that you should. And so... So let's go to, to the next thing. I want to show you, uh, we talked about the logic of love and why it, it makes sense, but it doesn't work. And everybody talks about it, but no one can be about it. But now let's talk about the proof of love. This is how God showed his love among us. Verse 9. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, the logic of love breaks down against the reality of our inability to love one another, and humanity's utterly hopeless, but the hope is not from within humanity. The hope is grounded in the fact that God sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him, and he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The proof of love is the person and work of Jesus that God so loved the world and he sent his son to be, to, to save the world, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the thing that's a little harder to swallow because what that is saying is, you know, you don't have it in yourself to make this world a better place. We don't have it in ourselves to make this world a better place. So God had to send a savior from outside of this world to redeem this world. We're not self-redeeming. We need 
Jesus to come and redeem us. Because what the Bible says clearly all over the place is that we're so broken and flawed and guilty that we can't love one another, but yet God, in the work of Christ and through the work of Christ, is so gracious and kind and merciful that he sent his Son to be our Redeemer. And it says very explicitly here, this is one of those most explicit passages where it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, to pay the price to propitiate the wrath of God against sins so that we could live forever. And, you know, in, in pagan cultures, in, in uh, ancient cultures, it was a common thing. People all everywhere understood that sacrifices had to be made to the gods. And depending on their culture, depending on what resources they have, everyone would sacrifice what they had. Some people would sacrifice grain or, or whatever it was they, they grew. Other people would sacrifice bulls and goats if they were shepherds, and that was their way of trying to appease their local deities, whatever that, that might be. And even the people of Israel had a had, had a, the, the whole temple and the priesthood was set up so that people could bring sacrifices to, to God. But what the Bible says throughout is these sacrifices are only a symbol of something greater. And there really is no sacrifice that you have to offer, nothing that you can give that will actually satisfy your obligation to God. Ultimately, what you need and what I need is for God himself to cover the cost of our guilt and our failure and our shortcomings. And so that tells us the cost of love, that love at its essence is costly. Love is difficult, and, that's, and grace is difficult. Grace is costly. That's why some of us avoid it, and that's why it's hard for us to love the difficult people who God puts in all of our life. It's because it requires something from us that we don't have. Because, I mean, think about it this way. If you are to forgive someone who's wronged you, what does it mean to forgive someone who's wronged you, to forgive someone who's hurt you, to forgive someone who's broken something of yours? It's saying, I'm not going to charge you for this offense. I'm not going to collect what is due me. I'm going to just let it go. But when you let that thing go, that doesn't mean that the cost or the burden of that wrong disappears. It just means that the burden of that wrong goes from the wrongdoer to the victim of that wrong, right? Does that make sense? Like, for example, someone smashes into your car. Some of you don't have cars, but some of you do. Imagine someone smashes into this car that, that you one day might have, and, and you say to yourself, well, this person, this person needs to, to, to repair this. But if you say, you know what, I'm a, I'm a big-hearted guy and I'm just going to forgive you this sin. I'm just going to forgive this. Don't worry about it. Just go on your merry way and, and we'll, we'll be fine. That doesn't mean that the problem goes away. It just means that the person who did the smashing is no longer paying to make things right. And the person who, was, who got smashed into is the person who's going to bear that burden. And so when Jesus came and suffered on the cross, what was that, what was happening there? God himself was bearing the punishment, bearing the consequences of the 
guilt of everyone who would believe in Jesus. That's what it means when it says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that is the proof of love to you and to me. You know, that's why for Christians, that's why the cross is the central symbol in the Christian life, because the cross is what we look to when we wonder if we're loved, when we wonder if God loves us. We look to the cross and we think about the cross and we reflect on the cross and we say, well, maybe nobody in this world loves me, but I know that God loves me and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for, his, for my sins. I don't need to look outward. I don't need to look, look laterally to the people around me. I can look to the cross and there I know, I know it, God's love for me is proven there in the cross. So, so that's the proof of love. And, I, you know, I think that the, the thing that reason this is important is because the struggle for love is universal for all people everywhere and for everybody in this room. Because we all have, you know, family of origin issues. We all have issues with our uh, relationship status, where, whether we're mar married or single. We all have fear of missing out, you know, on, on, on relationships that might or might not have happened. Uh, you know, questions about our friends and families today. In all, the, in all these areas, we have struggles, struggles for love, wondering, are we lovable enough? Are we loved enough? Is there anyone out there who loves us the way our heart needs to be loved? Because there's a deep, deep universal longing, regardless of your age, regardless of your marital status, regardless of your family dynamics, regardless of your social life, Deep in our heart, we all need to be loved. We all need to know that we are loved. The Bible says, look to the cross. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, the gospel and the proof of God's love is not a platitude that we throw around, not just a symbol that, that we're sentimental about, but it's, it's a reminder of God's entrance into history 2,000 years ago, at the first Christmas when he became one of us, at the first Good Friday when he died for us, and then at the first Easter when he conquered death for us. And so we go back to that, and God's love begins to become real to us. Romans 8 applies it this way. It says, what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave, us, gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things. So that's the proof of love that you're looking for. That's the proof of love that you need because everything else in your life, all those other relationships, they, they come and go and they have their ups and they have their downs. And the thing that will give you, give you a foundation and make you solid is your assurance of God's love through Christ. But you know, it's one thing to prove something. It's another thing to actually experience it. It's one thing to know something. It's another thing for that thing that we know to actually become real in our experience. And so how does this become real to us? You know, and I, I mean, I know this all the time because as, as a pastor, you know, you, you talk to people who are going through difficult times and, and often you want to go back to the work of Christ and the love of Christ for them. 
But, you know, when we're going through difficult times, when we're facing a personal crisis of some sort, all of a sudden, sometimes the thing that seems the most abstract and the most irrelevant in our life is, is some, some uh, Bible verse about how Jesus died for our sins or about how God is love and, and his love is in our hearts. But what this passage makes pretty clear is the way this becomes real to you and to me is in our relationships, in community. God sends his representatives. God sends the body of Christ. God sends the servants of Christ into our life. And it's in them and through them that we experience his love. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, it's tempting for us to read this and say, well, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And to read that kind of individualistically in the sense that, well, if, I, if we love one another, then I'm going to have a warm feeling in my heart about God's love and, and I'll be able to, to uh, go forward because of that. But I... I believe that the way we should read this is uh, collectively. In other words, we should say, read it this way. If we love one another, God lives in our midst, in, in, within the uh, dynamics of our relationships, and his love is made complete amongst us. In other words, we experience God's, practically speaking, I found this true in my own life and as I've observed it, the way you experience God's love is not usually sitting in a room and saying, God, I'm brokenhearted right now. Help me feel your love. The way you and I experience God's love is usually through God's people. God's presence manifests itself not just in our hearts individually, but in our interactions with other people who share God's love. You know, when you experience the generosity of a friend, when you find yourself in a tight spot and a friend says, well, let me cover some of your bills for a little while. That's God's provision for you. When you experience the, the mercy of a friend who helps you clean up a mess you find yourself in, that's God's mercy on you in that moment. When you experience the presence of a friend who is with you and pays attention to you and, and, and talks through your challenges with you when, you, when you're when you feel all alone, that's God's presence in your life. When you experience the provision of a friend, when someone opens their home to you, that's experiencing God's provision in your life. See, God uses you and me to love one another so that in us and through us, his love for us becomes real, becomes more than just a theory, becomes more than just a platitude that we, uh, that we affirm and becomes something that actually helps us with the actual issues that we all actually have today, tomorrow, and the next day. It's in the community of those loved by God that the love of God for us becomes real. See, and so what I'm saying here is that the church and our, our Christian communities are not an afterthought in God's plan. They're central to God's plan of, as to how it is we're going to experience God's love in our life. Does that make sense? Someone, not, not if that makes sense. You, you following me? So, so God's, God's hands, God's feet are your hands and, and your feet. God's generosity is what you have to give. God's care is your care 
in people's life. And it's in these interactions, in these times, that, that God provides a friend, God provides a, a, God provides fellowship, God provides, God provides support through the people around us that we're reminded of his provision for us, okay? So that's where we should go and look, look, look for God's care and God's love in our life. And, and, that's, and that is how you experience it. God, it's very hard for God's love to be real to you if you're not in fellowship with other people who love God and are seeking to love God. But when you're in that fellowship, then in profound ways, God will minister to you and meet your needs. That's why Christian community is so important. But let me tell you this. The place that you really experience the generosity of God, the place that you really experience the grace of God, the place that you really experience the love of God is not only receive help and support from other people, but it's when we commit in Jesus' name to give help and support to, to other people. When you choose to give to a friend in need, even though your own situation is pretty tight, you're experiencing a little bit of the sacrifice of Christ. When you allow your plan for the day to get messed up so that you can help out a friend who's really messed up, you're experiencing a little bit of the incarnation of Christ. When you open your home up, even though you value your prime privacy, you're experiencing a little bit of the openness of God. When you give up your time, even though you're tired, you're experiencing a little bit of Christ's sacrifice for you. When you give your attention to a friend, even though you're exhausted, you're experiencing a little bit of the incarnation of Christ. And I think most profoundly, most importantly, when you choose to offer forgiveness and grace to someone who's wronged you or someone who's hurt you. And you have to dig deep because it's difficult and you have to really stretch because it's painful. In that act of forgiveness, in that offering of grace, you're simply being reminded of the fact that Jesus died so that you could be forgiven and Jesus gave his life so that you could experience grace. And so when you're involved and when you're engaged and when you're seeking to love those who are difficult and, and it's hard and it's painful, and you ask yourself, why am I doing this? Let the answer be, because I remember how much Jesus did for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I just ask that this would become real to each of us and that we be a community of people and a church where this is real in our experience as we sacrifice and give of ourselves and inconvenience ourselves to help others and to love others and as we become forgiving people and merciful people in profound and deep ways. As we do that, Father, we pray that uh, the love that you have for us will become more real to all of us. I pray that you would challenge us to be more sacrificial that we might more profoundly understand the sacrifice of Christ, to be more generous that we might profoundly understand 
your gener generosity, and most of all, Father, to be more forgiving, to be more kind and gracious, that we might be reminded and astounded again as we consider your forgiveness of us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.